0: certainly encourage you to continue to pray for that this week as we you know move forward so today we're going to jump uh you, you might say we have a thematically related talk but it's not a talk taken directly out of the book of philippians which is where we have been uh we have communion that we'll celebrate afterwards so always a powerful day the second sunday of the month because of the elements themselves and how we get to remember um, jesus's sacrifice and What's interesting is today we're going to talk about uh, work, and I'll explain why here in a moment. So I'm going to share with you a a work story uh, before we actually jump into the crux of the talk. And most of you know that I uh, lived in New Orleans for a little over 10 years. Uh, My family moved from New York to Florida, uh, and then I moved from Florida to New Orleans and then New Orleans back to Florida. And so I've kind of been around between these three states, but I moved to New Orleans to pursue my academic education at the New Orleans Baptist Seminary. And so I uh, had some great times there, but what's interesting is I moved there as like a 23-year-old. And, you know, if you've ever relocated to an area, especially during that season of life, you know that there are some pretty major challenges that you have to address. And the two biggest being, like, where do I live and what do I do for, for work? Because, you know, you, as much as I wish you could just move into a city and all that stuff would be rolled out to you, it's not. You have to go there and kind of hustle a little bit and figure out how to work those things out. And so I moved to Louisiana, to the city, with a pretty... I thought was a pretty you know robust resume I had some experience in some job industries that I thought I'd be able to pretty easily land a job but for some reason I had an unusually hard time finding a job like I could not get a job and I put in like a hundred applications everywhere so after a while somewhat out of desperation I moved out of the areas of like what I wanted to do and moved into the areas of like I just have to start doing something and I put some resumes into restaurants because I had had about five years of kitchen cooking like re- restaurant cooking and so I thought, well, surely somebody will hire me there, and nobody did, and I was pretty bummed out about it. And so I was at this place where I just was not sure what I was going to do, and I was told by a friend of mine that a local Chick-fil-A, which was on the other side of the city, was looking to hire what was essentially a, a, it was a low-level management position, a, a day manager of sorts, you might call it. And so I put it in an application, and I got hired like the day after. It was pretty quick. And I began to see the reasoning behind this afterwards. You know, in the middle of the grind, it's kind of hard to understand what's going on in life, and I know for me, sometimes I really begin to question God's purposes and what He's doing, but when you have hindsight, sometimes those things are much clearer than, uh, than they were in the middle of the situation. This is certainly what happened here. And so, uh, somewhat ironically, that time uh, doing day management in that restaurant really prepared me for the roughly seven years I would spend in student ministry, because about 50% of our employees were in high school, and the majority of them did not know or have any care or desire to, to know God. And so... The nature of my role created a, a massive amount of teachable moments on the job, and they usually revolved around two key areas: the first was the work itself, obviously we had to run the restaurant and you know manage all that stuff um, and, but the second was I noticed as I got a kind of more relational with people and got to know the folks that I was working with, some of who were even older than me, you started having these opportunities to talk about life in general, so you know the work bleeds into life and life bleeds into the work and One teachable moment really stood out it was with a a teenager, there were about six of us that had to open on a Saturday morning, uh, very early. We get there, and you know, when you open a restaurant, that's kind of contingent upon the people that closed it uh, the night before. And there's a lot of stuff you have to do to get that thing kind of cleaned and ready for the next day of business. So we got there, and the the, the place was actually kind of a, a bit of a train wreck. It was not, we would say, closed properly. And so uh, particularly, the the floors were just in really, really bad shape. Nobody would have wanted to step in that place and uh, and eat and so we had to go into like an emergency management mode and i had started talking to people about what to do clean the stuff up getting the place ready for open we had about an hour and i'd taken this one kid and i said listen i really need you to remop the, the counter section of the store because that's where the first contact for our customers will be in and, and so the kids started mopping i went to the back of the store i came back kind of seeing what's going on and sure enough i noticed that I don't, I don't know what you know about mopping but there actually is a proper way to mop um, and then there's an improper way to mop, and it kind of looked like uh, the way he was mopping, like 15 drunk people playing hockey, like slopping dirt all around the the, the store. Uh, and so I saw this was a problem, and I went over and I said, "Hey, listen, um, I really want to talk to you about mopping. This is like not how we mop. This is kind of what we've inherited from the night before." And so I spent a couple of minutes, really, you know, very graciously showing him how to mop, how to mop the floor, how to move the dirt to the place where it got off the floor, and not just to the left or the right side of the the room we were in. And so after the talk and finishing it, um, this guy came up to me and he said, listen, uh, he said, I, don't, I, I have a question. He didn't say it this formally, but he said, I, I kind of want to know, um, like, why you take mopping the floor so seriously. Like, I had, like, a whole rhythm. It's called a holiday, the way you do it. And he said, I don't get this, nor do I get you. This is just a mop and a floor. What do you care about it for? And, uh, and it was a really good question. And he proceeded to say, like, this isn't even your store. He's like, you just work here, like me. Um, And so I said, okay, well, this is a good question. This is kind of like, uh, it's a good evidence of the way people are wired. We want the whys in life, right? We actually have a, a whole theological system called epistemology that teaches us God says things, but there's usually very serious whys behind them, right? And the whys in life are almost always where our hearts connect to the reality of who God is. And so I said, okay... Uh, this is one of those teachable moments. And I shared with him, I didn't like whip out the Bible and say, I want to share with you Colossians 3, you know, and, and get on the counter and talk to him. I kind of very colloquially, uh, colloquially shared what we're going to talk about today with him. And I went on to explain to him that, you know, for a Christian, the reason why I felt it was important, I mean, even before this, my dad really instilled in us kind of hard work, but it, it was like an up ante now because verses and teachings like this showed us that for a Christian working hard, And striving for excellence in all we say and do really is a central part of the Christian faith. Now, excellence doesn't mean perfection, but excellence means you want to do as well as you can in what you're doing as unto the Lord. That's what Paul tells us. It's a central part of the Christian faith because it truly is a central part of who God is and the way that he works in our lives. And so naturally... Uh, using the kind of the, the Christian logic here, if this is who God is, and God says we should think about being like this, then those who follow God should have some of this in them. We should be wrestling with whether or not we are doing our best for him in every area of life, no matter how sensational or mundane it is. So for the Christian, what happens is this this becomes a real theological issue for he and I. He doesn't know this, but we're really discussing this. What he is saying is um, I don't know why you're doing this. Like, there's no, there's no reason for why you should be doing this. And this is what we would probably say is a little bit um, faulty in the way that he believed this. If, we, if you look at this kind of worldview, it's, it's almost like, um, let, me, let me put it this way. Although what we do in our work is, is sometimes for the benefit of others, it is ultimately done for Jesus. And here's what I mean by this. It's done for Jesus because even though you're mopping a floor, in my mind I'm mopping a floor because I think what I do is ha- it has a reflection on who I am in God. And who I am in God has a reflection on who God is. So work, in general here, is meant to reveal something about the character and the nature of God to the world. And the way we do work for Him, or do not work for Him, vicariously does the same thing, right? It begins to reveal a little bit about who God is. And so, where are we going with this? Well, today we're taking a one-week break from our Philippians study to talk about work since we just celebrated Labor Day. And I know you're thinking like, Labor Day was last weekend, Pastor Anthony, why didn't we do it then? And I'll tell you why. Because there's a great irony in Labor Day. We celebrate working by not working, and then half of the church always goes out of town. That's pretty much what happens. Like, every church in America celebrates work. Nobody does any, and they leave, and we're all here with like, our notes and like, five people. That's what happens not happen on Labor Day. So we do the Labor Day talk the week after Labor Day when most of you are back in town. That's kind of the, the logic behind this because holidays are a funny thing. Right? So work is also a funny thing. Most people have a love-hate relationship with it. You have some people who find great meaning and satisfaction in what they do, while others kind of disdain what they do. Some people, even though they have the, the mental uh, and the physical capacity to work and to really work well, they're capable, they rather irresponsibly choose not to. While others, uh, they, they just work so much they're identifiable workaholics. These, these kind of polar extremes and everything that exists in the middle shows us that work has a, a very substantial role in the lives of humanity. And because it is such a significant part of our lives, and the way God created us, I mean, you have a lot of scriptural teaching, one verse we'll look at today, that really affirms this. This post-Labor Day weekend, I want to share with you two truths about, about work. Because even though the, the holiday is over, the, the work in our lives is likely not. And the idea here is, is it gives us an opportunity to find balance in our work in a way that honors Jesus. So, very quickly, I'll just share with you the two thoughts where we're heading, and then we'll jump right into it. The first is looking at what the key to finding joy in our work is, no matter what it is. And this is why I say thematically, this idea is kind of connected to what we're talking about in Philippians. Finding joy in life's circumstances. One of the circumstances of life is our vocation. And so work is not exempted from that whole first chapter of Philippians that we studied. So this is important to realize that we're, you know, we're deviating, but not that much. The second is a warning against the most common way that our vocations can rob us, from the joy God desires us to experience in our work. Because this is the thing about work, is it can fulfill you and satisfy you in a healthy way, or it can actually rob you of the vitality that you want in life, and then work becomes a kind of a humdrum or a kind of hobby or an obsession maybe. And so let's jump right in and look at the first idea I want to talk about this morning. The key to finding joy in your work, which is the general theme we're looking at today. The key to finding joy in your work is knowing you ultimately, here's the key word, ultimately... Labor for Jesus. And this is what Paul says in Colossians 3:23 through 24. Very practical book about living in life. And he gets to this section on work. And he says this, whatever you do, that's a pretty broad statement, right? Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, because it is the Lord Christ you are serving. He draws some pretty strong distinctions there. You know, what we do, we do for the benefit of other people. Mopping that floor was for the benefit of a bunch of people that were going to eat lunch that day. But ultimately, for those of us who follow God, the work we do has a, an even greater significance. And I hope to prove to you the reasoning behind that here in a moment. So, the way you can know whether or not you see work as something that is kind of mundane or a problem, or if you're working for the pleasure of God, is by asking yourself a question. Do you see your work as a blessing or a burden? This is kind of the idea that is embedded in Colossians. Is work for you a blessing or it is a burden, or is it a burden? And I want to begin by looking at what work as a burden looks like. And then we'll kind of naturally weave into the blessing side of this. So this idea of work as a burden is a common view of work today, where some people see work as like a necessary evil they, they must engage in. This is, was truly the kind of nut and bolt of the conversation I had with that young man that day. This was just slopping a mop around for him. And he had to do it because his parents said, if you want a car, go get a, go get a job. And that's what he did. It was like a completely existence-based type of work. And there's a simple equation that fuels this attitude in a person's heart. And it goes like this. Uh, I'm a human, like you. Humans, in order to, to survive, like we have to have food in our bellies and clothes on our back and, and a roof over our head. And in order to get all that stuff, I've got to gotta have money because that stuff is not given away for free in our society. And so in order to survive... I have, to, I have to acquire money, and in order to acquire money, I, I have to work. Therefore, I exist, uh, and when, when possible, I work to basically provide my, mean, my, my substance in life. And sometimes this can go a little bit awry. If you want more detail in this, listen to that busyness series we did a couple of years ago. Sometimes for people, working, uh, existing is not just like providing for what they need. It, their existence becomes like a leisure-based living. They basically live to, to not work for the pleasure of God, but for the pleasure of self, and that's a whole other problem. All right, So in this worldview, people feel like they live in one of those old black and white films. Uh, we have a pretty young church, so you guys like black and whites? What's that? But that's a film uh, that is not in color. And the idea was that you have this like iconic Depression-era image where you saw long lines of people, you know, standing in line, all dressed the same way, and they were all, like, shuffling their feet to a punch clock, getting ready to, to punch in. This is what work was like for them. It was a complete humdrum, existence-based living. There was no joy in it. They just did it because they they had to do it. It was like survival. And so over time, what happens is people that see their work like this, they start to get numb to it because they might not be able to, to articulate this. But the truth is that they carry within them an incredibly deep negativity towards the work that they're doing or just work in general. And the reason for the negativity is they often feel like they are working themselves into the ground and when the day is over, they have no idea what or why they're actually working for. It's an existence disconnected from purpose. Those of you who are working in areas you really love know this to be. The, this is the contrary, right? Or it's to the contrary. When you enjoy what you're doing, it changes the way you view it. And so the reason this tension exists in the human heart, the reason it creates so much unrest in the human heart is because we were not meant to live this way. And this is true with all circumstances. We were not meant to live devoid of Jesus' joy in what we do. And when those of us, especially those of us in Christ, are without his joy, what happens is our hearts rumble a little bit. We get hungry for that again. We might not even be able to explain what we're looking for, but the truth is is it begins to create a pressure or a tension in our lives that, that makes us feel uneasy or anxious or angry or sad or whatever it is. There's no limit to the palette of emotions that follow this, but the root issue is the same. God desires you to live with joy, and you are without it. And so Paul is clear here. Here's, the, here's like the, the truth bomb that he lays the foundation for what we're talking about today under, or above. He says, uh, it's clear, according to God, that no matter what work you're doing, the key to not seeing it as a burden, as mundane, as, as existence-based living, is to do it with a heart wholly devoted to the Lord. In other words, you have to take your eyes off the work and look to the one you work for. It's to do the work as if we were serving the Lord himself through it, as if he was standing behind the counter directing the mop strokes that day, or whatever the equivalent of the mop strokes are in your world when you go back to work tonight or tomorrow. And the reason we should believe this is because, according to Paul, we actually are doing this. We are working directly for him. And so training our hearts to believe that all work matters to God is, is how we can ultimately find joy in our work. It's, it's the beginning of surfacing something that is not tr- a truth in our lives, and beginning to apply the truth of the grace of the gospel to it. I say this a lot. If you want to know uh, the truth of who you are in Jesus, it likely means at some point you will have to identify the lies that you believe and apply the grace of Jesus to the lie. And, And in here it's a very obvious one. Your work doesn't matter and neither do you. But the truth is that what Jesus says to people like Paul and other places that talk about work, especially the parables, Jesus says, no, your work does matter. It matters to me, my Father in heaven, and my Holy Spirit that I leave within you. That's the, lie that combat, or the truth that combats the lie. And so, essentially, what this passage and the other work teachings in Scripture teach us is that all work, providing it is noble, uh, just, and legal, it means it is, it is deeply pleasing to God. And in its, in its own way, here's the key. It is essential Hear that word, essential to making the world a stable place to live in. This is why we can, in a very serious way, affirm what Paul says, that it all matters and it has good reason. What he's saying, Paul, is no matter what work you're doing, if you can start to see it through God's eyes, you will find that there is a purpose for it. And here's the big kind of connection point to this. When there is a purpose in what you are doing, there is also a purpose for you. And that is pretty big. When what you do matters then you start to realize, you know, to a certain degree, I actually matter. Now, there's a problem with that. We'll go to the abuse of that here in the back end of my talk this morning. But the reality here is what you do matters, likely uh, to a host of other people also. But the problem is we live in a culture that largely some people are just unaware of how much what you do matters. You might be doing things that are very significant, but our culture is so busy and moving that there is not really a space for people to affirm that. So I have shared this quote with you before, uh, many, many, many years ago, but I want to share it again. It's from the great reformer Martin Luther, who wrote extensively on the subject of why your work matters to God. He's written a lot on this, and there's a lot of great kind of Christian literature on this. But this, to me, if if we had to, like, take one quote that is the summary of what we're talking about today, there's this one, and that's why I want to share it with you. And it's kind of a modernized quote of how he encouraged the people of his days, 500 years ago, right, to rethink how God saw the work in their lives as a divine calling, as, as blessing, not burden. And here's what he said. He said, we pray in the Lord's Prayer for God to give us our daily bread, right? So, and he does this. This is what I was saying, existence-based living, right? We need these things to live. This is why Jesus says, pray for this. We pray in the Lord's Prayer for God to give us our daily bread, which he does. He does so, not directly, as when he gave manna to the Israelites. I don't know about you, but like loaves of bread have never flown through my windows in my home, right? This is what he's saying. There is this time... There is a place where God, like, really does almost miraculously provide this stuff. But that's not always the case. In fact, that's not the normative way. Not through manna, but through the work of farmers and bakers, and we might add truck drivers and retailers. In effect, the whole economic system is the means by which God gives us our daily bread. Each part of the economic food chain is a vocation through which God works to distribute his gifts. Similarly, God heals the sick. And while he can and sometimes does do so directly... We always want to claim the miracle. That's important, right? Perhaps what is just as significant a miracle is what he says next. In the normal course of things, he works through doctors, nurses, and other medical experts. God protects us from evil with the vocation of the police officer. God teaches through teachers, orders society through governments, and proclaims the gospel through pastors. And obviously that's a short list of the many vocations that that really matter in our world. Um, Most of them entirely thankless you ever think about finding the guy at walmart that drove the bread full of truck i mean the the truck full of bread what's a bread full of truck i don't, I don't know that would be a cool thing to see but uh, right you, you, ever, you ever think about that guy like you go you like sourdough bread and you go to walmart or target or whatever and every day it's there and some guy is you know humping bread state to state or factory there and this is what i mean by the 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 power of some of these vocations and the fact that um I have a, a neighbor who is a, a, a deputy, and we were talking about the change in the election and the new sheriff, and, uh, and it's very clear that for a lot of these guys that go out there and risk their lives every day, and the, and the women in the PDs, they, they just, nobody ever says thank you. There's a lot of heat and critique, right? So these things, sometimes it can be very easy to look at some of these professions and to not ever hear, like, thank you, this matters. But the truth is, begin to remove them, and we'll realize how much they matter. If no trucks run in America, it's about three days before we don't have food on shelves. That's pretty much what the science says. And so in this famous quote, right, Martin Luther makes it clear why all work, no matter what you do, no matter how mundane or sensational it appears to us, it must all be viewed as a noble calling in God's eyes. How? Well, this is what I love about about God. You know, there's a term we use in the Christian faith. We we make a bit of a a distinction between grace and common grace. And for those of us in Jesus, we would say we know Jesus' grace. We have experienced the truth of his grace on the cross. But God is such a good God that we also believe he provides what we call common grace to the world, there are graces like this afforded to the world to people that don't even know God. He just says, you know, hey, these are just this is like my blessing to the world. And I sort of hope that through the blessing you will, you will come to the true grace in Jesus. But if for nothing less, these 80 years you've got on earth, here's grace. Here's common grace. And that's what he's saying here, Luther. He's saying work is one of the primary ways that God causes a common grace to fall on the earth. That benefits all people. And when a society is filled with men and women who work hard and find satisfaction in what they do great things can actually happen. God can cause us a, a society to flourish and to prosper. And on the contrary, think about the other end where there is a lack of this in civilization, where there is little work and much corruption through lawlessness, it can create a breeding ground for hopelessness. And if you need kind of a proof positive of this in our nation alone, one of the best examples we have of this is the economic recession we went through in 2008. You want to summarize what happened there? Yeah, there was a A lot of economic logistic that created that situation. But at the end of the day, the the user end of the the recession, much like the one in the 20s, was that hopes and dreams were created and crushed based on the availability of jobs in the world. That's what happens. When there's no money, there's no jobs. When there's no jobs, people begin to lose hope. And so it is a real tell that societies can rise and fall on this. It's a real tell that we have been made to work and to work in a way that uh, we find significance in what we do. We see it as as blessing from God, not necessarily burden, no matter what the truth is or the work is. And so this truth, when it's fully realized, can lead us to a place in life where we can have joy in our work no matter what we're doing. Because much like all the other circumstances we have addressed in Philippians, our joy is no longer tethered to the temporal and ever-changing circumstances of the workplace. The good seasons and the bad have an effect on life, but they do not drive life any longer. Rather, what happens now is your, your joy, your happiness, is based on seeing the blessings and challenges of work that in, in your life through, through the promised inheritance of the hope of Jesus. The Jesus. What Paul says is, listen, it doesn't matter what you're doing, but there's a promise from God that if you do it well, you, you have his, his approval is there. His grace is there. There's an inheritance from Him in that in and of itself, no matter what we ever do or do not do on this earth. Paul says when we're faithful to work with all of our hearts for the Lord, no matter what we're doing... Truly, at this point, you've already succeeded. And even better, we can know in our hearts that we're exactly where we should be, doing what God has made us for. That truth never changes. That is a, that's not even a circumstantial truth. That's an objective truth that should define the circumstances in our lives. It never changes. So there's the beauty part of this, right? There's the hope and the joy, but there's always, where there is a truth, there's always a challenging lie. And that said, as much as God desires us to find great meaning in what we do, that healthy attitude can become an idol in and of itself. And this leads me to the second truth that I'd like to share with you this morning. Very quickly, you know, we talk about idols here pretty regularly. And an idol, if you, if you don't understand what we mean by that, um, they're no longer big bronze or gold statues. An idol is simply when we take something in life that is a good thing from God and we make it an ultimate thing to then, to then walk away from God. That's what an idol is. And work on the other side of the spectrum can actually become the same thing. So, while God gave us work to help us find meaning in life, very clear, he never meant it to become our ultimate identity in life. That's a big distinction there. He meant to provide meaning through it, but not ultimate worth or meaning. And so, missing this identity truth is, it can cause you to experience bondage. This is actually language loose, used here. Like, the idea of being enslaved to it, Paul says. You experience bondage in work rather than freedom from it. So in many ways, this warning is the exact opposite concern of the first truth that we spoke about, because it speaks to the person who derives an unhealthy amount of value and worth in their lives from their work. And in extreme cases, their work is what they find their ultimate satisfaction and validation in their life in. And the root of this issue is when a person, they stop working to find pleasure in God, especially true for the Christian, and they start working to bring an ultimate pleasure to themselves. They work for uh, the external circumstances of their job, uh, titles and promotions, income structures, successes and failures, none of these things which are bad by themselves. What happens is when you start seeing them as what matters most in life, you will eventually, and may perhaps even subliminally, stop seeing the, the pleasure element of what Paul tells us to do, working for God. He's the most important person we work for. That's what gives us a stability in those things when we are without them. We have meaning in life despite our work. This is the, the other side of that promise that Paul gives us. So what this person does is they trade temporal accolade for the eternal hope of Christ. And I want to share with you something kind of from inside the camp here. So uh, we are connected to a denomination, EFCA, the Free Church of America, and a missional partnership called the X29 Church Planning Network. And in both of these networks, we place a a great emphasis on how we assess and coach uh, young men who want to start churches around the country. We actually just did an assessment um, last month on a a young couple, right? And so what happens is over the years we have sensed such a strong problem with work and identity, not just in the, you know, the the work outside of the church, but even the work inside of the church, that it has now become a major component of the way that we assess people. We are trying to get uh, ahead of the curve here by creating a theological awareness for this work identity issue before it becomes a full-blown idol in a person's heart. And unfortunately, I want to introduce a character I've shared with you here before, um, I've talked about my grandfather a couple of times and here. He's quite a character. There's a prevailing sentiment in our culture that, especially amongst like clergy, that they don't really work. Like it's kind of a lazy man's job. And my grandfather is a, is a major proponent of this. Um, he is a salty dog, uh, quite a character. And uh, he doesn't think that I have a real job. Like if you were to talk to him, he would tell you very unashamedly like that. I don't really do anything. I don't work. And he thinks that um, all pastors, they just work for like 30 minutes a week. It's kind of like, I do this, and then I go home and sleep for the other 6.95 days of the week. And it can get pretty interesting sometime. In my family, you have to, like, roll and kind of hit back. That's how you get respect. So when, when they harass you like this, you, you have to kind of harass back to maintain uh, your respect. But there was a time I'm never I'm – never, this is very true – where my grandfather said that, uh, that he believed the way that, like, church finances worked was that everybody kind of tithed and, – and when I say tithed, meaning my family tithes too. We do this like everybody else – what happened is, is, we paid the bills, and I just kept the rest. That's when he went on, like, like, like I don't know, like there was some secret leprechaun pot of gold at the end of the restoration that I just had full access to. And that's our, our books are totally open. If you have any questions about that, that's just not the way that it works. So uh, I think what he thinks is like I work for 25 or 30 minutes a week, and then you guys bought me a helicopter, and I fly all over just around town in and, it, uh, and it's just like not true. Uh, and and I say this to say that we actually on on the ground we find this to be the exact opposite. Um, what we find is when when we assess folks, especially those that want to start churches, there's a common thread that they are usually highly driven. Some of them are are pretty skilled. Some of them are not, but they have an incredible work ethic, and they know how to resource and network. But what happens is these are not people who are lazy, because as you know, most of you serving our church know that church planning is not a lazy person's task. It's probably got more work connected to it than the average church, and I'm not saying that as like a mark of honor i'm just saying it's the reality of the the nature of church planning and we pray one day god will help us in these areas but for now this is what he's given us and we're going to do it well right so in in the early days of a church plant these are people who have the aptitude to wear like 10 different hats. They, they become the CEO, the CFO, they're overseeing HR management, conflict management, leadership development, they're counseling people, they're running administration, they're community liaison, amongst a ton of other duties in the church, all of which require more than 27 minutes a week of your life to you know, get all that stuff done. So for most of us, like a sermon, when, when all of the cylinders are firing properly, we tell people like if you're exceeding more than 25% of what is about a 60-hour work week, Um, for your sermon, you're spending too much time in it, and you're likely going to begin neglecting, most of the time benevolently, but you're going to begin neglecting other critical duties. So if you ever meet my grandfather, I would like you to tell him that. Um, And if you do, here's my promise. I will take you to the deck down under in Restoration 1, our church helicopter. I'll fly us down there, and it'll be great. There's a special landing pad on the top just for me, right? So listen, I know there's lazy pastors out there, there's lazy people all over, um, but seldom do we, do we deal with that person. What we find is the more common issue is that we have people um, who, who struggle with the work identity issue. This is the bigger issue. And so the reason they, they find their ultimate identity in their church or what they're doing or not doing. Same way we can find our ultimate identity in our vocations. The reason such a great emphasis is placed on the work identity issue is because it's common over time for very solid pastors, even for, for very solid people who pursue Jesus well. They have really good hearts, but they start to seek their ultimate identity in their work. They start to see, in our case, what, in your identity, what your church is and isn't doing, how it is growing or not growing, the years where it's up, it's great, the years where it's down, it's not, In the difference you're making, how much... Uh, tithes and offerings are being collected who's coming to jesus how many people are being baptized how many people show up at your events commit to service, whatever it is there's no shortage of of lists that you can check boxes on and if ultimately you you are ultimately working for those things you're going to have a very miserable life and there's a reason i'm talking about this from the pastorate because those of you who serve jesus I promise we'll get back to the workplace in a minute but those of you who serve jesus for the kingdom you you know exactly what i'm talking about many of you oversee ministries in this place and outside of this place And you have likely felt this pressure at times. The extreme spiritual high associated with seeing the fruit from the labor of your hands. I mean, it's really great when you work and stuff happens. That's what we all want. But then there are times when you work really hard and nothing happens. And there's an extreme disappointment that is connected to that. You wonder why there is no fruit. Or you invest in people and they they take advantage of you. Or you pour your hearts out for folks and they walk away. This is the hard stuff, right? Although our normal rhythms and the life cycle of a church in God's kingdom at large, Jesus Himself did not escape that reality. He redeemed the world on the cross and had a disciple that tried to kill Him. The spectrum was drastic between you know what He did and, and at times the rejection and the suffering and the hurty face. For some people in this place, they think about this: you're just going to church and listen. I don't say that in a negative way. We are thankful you're here, incredibly thankful you're here. But it's worth pointing out that for others, they've worked very hard and made a great sacrifice this morning to make this place a church we could all go to church in, right? So there's a strong takeaway for us in this truth, that when it comes to our work, no matter what banner it flies under, in your workplace, under the roof of the theater, in your ministries outside of this place, in the church family, wherever it is, unless we labor in the world and, and, and the church and remind ourselves of this truth that we read in Colossians, that even when the mornings are difficult, we have problems with the air conditioners this morning here, and there are technical difficulties in the theater to overcome or when you're dealing with a tough situation at work, a coworker or a boss who's making your life difficult for you, when the work you do, no matter where it is, is less glorious than you'd prefer it. For those of you right now, parenting, moms and dads, who might be drifting towards finding your ultimate satisfaction in being a mom or a dad to your children, or you're pouring 100 hours a week into them, and if you feel like you're just running your head into a brick wall, what you have to know is this is all work. Valuable, noble, essential work. You have to know, though, ultimately... Your work, if you do it right and before the Lord, cannot be defined by the results of those circumstances. They must be defined by how you honor Jesus in those circumstances. And I think it's fair to say that if we own this truth, that results will likely be a little healthier on the back end of that spectrum. This is the driving factor. It doesn't matter what it is. We work for his pleasure and unto the Lord because there is nothing but success in that. Perhaps what is most dangerous about finding your ultimate identity in your work, think about this, this this paradigm applies to all the promises of Jesus, is that when you lose your joy because you don't succeed in what you plan to do, then what that likely means is you'll, you'll not only acquire joy, but you'll probably suck up some of God's glory when you do accomplish what you do set out to do. Because ultimately, if you think you're the failure point, and I'm not saying we should be naive to the fact that we can make mistakes and do things that damage things, please hear me here. But I'm saying if, you, if ultimately you think stuff does happen because of you or doesn't happen because of you, you become the God in that construct. And eventually, you'll take the credit. You'll be God when it's good, and you'll treat yourself like a, a subhuman when it's not good. Both are manic ways to understand your relationship in Jesus. So, on a side note, if you wonder why we, why we talk about service in here a lot, um, and it's one of our discipleship pathway connection points, we do that because we genuinely believe that, so kind of like what we read about in the Gospel of Mark, a person will never fully know Jesus until they begin to embrace what he said, that the Son of Man comes to serve and not be served. And that, that may begin in this room, but it is limitless in your life and the way that God calls you and sets you apart to, to labor for his common grace his common good in the lives of the people that he's put in in your path so keep that in mind when we speak about service it's important to know that god's got a meaning and a purpose for you and he wants you to represent him well no matter where you are and so no, no matter what the work is i think it's pretty fair to say that to a certain degree every single person deals with this i exist because i achieve syndrome for some people it might be excessive for others it might be kind of mild but there's some of this even a little bit in everybody And if you are dealing with this identity and work issue, and you you, you really have two options in how you train your heart to deal with it. The first is to let uh, Jesus, who is a God of grace and benevolence and goodness, teach you this truth as he speaks through passages like the one we're studying about today. This is why we have spent some time talking about the importance of seeing and understanding Jesus' word in the scripture. When we read stuff like this, what God is saying is, it's going to be good for your heart to own this, because if you do... There, there's, a, there's a way to learn this truth through the common and the good grace of God. And that's the bullseye for us, right? The second way to, to kind of learn this truth is to let the cruel sting of life teach it to you. And I just want to warn you that if you adopt life as your teacher, uh, there is seldom, if ever, any grace when she teaches you the lessons of life. It's the difference between Jesus shepherding you to truth and essentially life knocking you off of the pedestal of what you consider your life. That's typically how that works outside of this range. And so here's how you can know which teacher speaks to you. If you're trying to figure out, if, you, if, you're, in a, if you're a person who's learning the, the hard knocks of life through life, or you're trying to grow in Christ by hearing his words, here's how you can know this with this issue. If you hear Paul's words in this passage about finding identity in your work, and, and then you have battles raging, like there's little light switches popping in your heart, and you're saying... You know, I do struggle with this, and, and there are times, maybe even right now, where I have let my work uh, prescribe an unhealthy worth and meaning to my life. And you're saying, like, I really want to change this, but I don't know how. I mean, I'm not in your head or your heart, but I can say that is a pretty good indication that you're hearing the voice of Jesus. What's happening is there's, a, there's an internal healthy conflict taking place in you. There's an old man and an old, a new man or an old woman or an, and a new woman, and they're beginning to converse. And that's a good thing. It might be a little tense at first, but that is a good thing. That means there is truth in you trying to seep its way out. And now I would say, if that is where you're at, it's time to do battle with the idol. Let the the strength of Jesus shepherd you out of that. On the contrary, if you're working hard for your own glory, and if you sit here today desiring to achieve success so that you can validate your existence on earth, so that you can know you're somebody in life, if you're finding yourself in your achievements and losing yourself in your failures and mistakes, then you are likely listening to the teacher of life. And I'll say it again, when life teaches the lessons, the error of our way, it is always a painful one because there just is no mercy there. Life just goes on and you're left in the wake of that. So if this is you, if you're finding your identity in your work, you're finding your peace in your career, it means that your peace in life is as fragile as the very career you're in. And if you wonder about the fragility of vocation, just rewind the clock to 2008. That's the perfect example of why this is a false god. Your peace will be as fragile as your success and as crushing as your failure's. You will experience both of these things in life. We all experience success and failure. But the problem with making it an idol is that when they come and go, so does your joy. On the contrary, knowing God is the only person you have to please in life when, you, when it comes to your work. Hear me here, it doesn't excuse responsible hard work. It does not condemn wanting to succeed in life. None of these things are wrong. Uh, they can actually be very God-honoring, noble desires. If you want to make a difference in the world, that is a good thing. God-honoring desire. The difference, though, is that it relieves you from the pressure associated with the hard work and success if you make them idols. You have a tolerance now for what happens when you change the world a little less slowly than you hoped. Or things don't work out the way that you expected them to. And that's why understanding the essential nature of work in our lives is important. It really does shape who we are. It's, it is one of the biggest chunks of time, if not the biggest chunk of time, in, in our lives today. We spend more time working than we do any, any other thing, pretty much. Working for for God's kingdom, working in our vocations, preparing in school to go to work. We're all working towards something, most of us. And as we wrap up this post-Labor Day message, where we talk about work and we actually have to go back to it tomorrow, let me leave you with three very common causes. Joy robbers that will rob the modern worker of their joy. I'll be very brief here, and I hope you will kind of reflect on them today and during the week. They will hinder your ability to joyfully work for the Lord. So make sure you don't find yourself in one of them today. They are very simple statements, but there are a complex set of spiritual and, and physical emotions connected to them. So here they are. You will be joyless in life. I'm just telling you. You might even you might even feel like it's okay, but the truth is, is it's not. Some people are just not inclined to want to work at all. And I'm telling you that if, if you understand the nature of work and vocation, Sabbath and rest, there's a rhythm God has in the scripture. Today we focus on one side of that spectrum. And if you're a person or you know people that are not inclined to want to work at all, in our culture, the the non-theological term for this is we call this person like a taker. What happens is, this is a big problem, especially for a Christian, because it's a direct violation of who God is and your responsibility to bear his image well. Laziness is not condoned anywhere in the Bible, neither is excessive workaholism. Excuse me. So please make sure in life that you you don't embody this rhythm, because it really does bear a false witness to your Father in Heaven. So, please avoid laziness. Secondly, some people are working in the right profession with the wrong attitude because they have let their work become their ultimate identity. The The issue... I need a drink of water. Are you guys okay with that? Give me a quick second here. That was totally for effect. I just made that up. I have a sweat rag and then I'm wipe myself with now. Uh, some people are working in the right profession with the wrong attitude because they have let work become their ultimate identity And so what's happening is is they're they're actually doing what they were meant to do but because they have an unhealthy expectation in it their joy rises and falls on the successes and failures of that work this is especially true for those of you who really care about your work it's as if your dna is in it and so what happens is it's good to care you should care about your work but be cautious to not let it become an idol in doing so the work becomes all the sweeter when you can appreciate it for not, for not being its ultimate, the ultimate thing in life, you can actually value it in the right way. So some of us are in the right profession with the wrong attitude or expectation. And lastly, some of us are just joyless because we're really in the wrong profession. And it's really fair to say that. Simply put, what this means is God's built you to do something different than what you're doing right now. And if that's the case, it's really worth praying about and seeking what that is. Uh, we're called to find joy, and we're told we can have joy in every, in every type of work we do. So what I'm saying is, is, even if it's not your end game, you should be able to find joy in it. That's what Paul tells us. However, you should not unnecessarily persist in dissatisfaction in your work, if you can avoid it. But the tricky part to this statement is that you need to make sure, if, the, if you sense this, that it is the God of your life, and that the feelings of your heart, driving this. Because it can be very easy on very rough days to say, I'm doing the wrong thing. And that may be an indication that you're doing the wrong thing. But you know as well as I do, no matter what you're doing, you're going to have rough days. So what you want in a situation like this is for God to direct your steps into the, the thing he's wired you for. So that you make good decisions that are lifer decisions that honor him. Not necessarily erratic emotional decisions that, that feel good for two years and then you repeat the same problem. Two years, it's a different thing and you got the, you're at the same, the same impasse. I mean, you're just as joyless doing this as you were that. That's a good sign and if you have a history of this, that's a good sign that the, the heart strings might be out of tune. So please know, God wants you to find your sweet spot in your work. And I hope you will spend some time meditating on this truth, and perhaps more importantly, learning to live in it on Monday when you all go back to work. So as we close this morning and move to the communion table, this is a time where we can kind of pray and process who God is. We, we reflect on these words through his sacrifice. If you're sitting here saying... I want to live like this, but I don't have the strength to do that, then this is going to matter for you today because what the cross shows us is that Jesus provides strength for us in the places we don't have it. So make your prayer this morning as we begin to think about our lives in light of our work. If you've got this down, then you ask God to help you keep this down. If you're questioning a change in your life, ask God to give you clarity in that. And if you truly are at a place where you know you need to make a change, but you don't have the strength for it, then say that to God. Start with that. He already knows that. Just let him get you to the place where you can pray the, pa- the prayer with honesty. honestly honesty. Invite him into your life to be the solution. And as we do this, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about your work? How are you working? And what are you going to do about it if he speaks to you this morning? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for work. We thank you, God, that you provide it for us. You hardwire us for it. In many ways, God, you, I wouldn't say you've ultimately created us for it, but, but it's very clear that even in the understanding of the way you build local bodies called churches around the world, you have created us to be something in you and to do something for you. And so we just pray right now, Lord, that as, as we have some time to reflect on the sacrifice and the cross, take communion and respond, that you would just speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.